Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Bridget Stewart. She has a Bridget Stewart MSLMHC CDBT is a licensed psychotherapist with four years of experience in mending and bridging gaps in the mental health field. Bridget has gained clinical knowledge and experience in both inpatient and outpatient settings and carries a background in working with individuals across lifespans. She specializes in trauma-focused therapy, depression, anxiety, phobias, and other mood-related and behavioral changes. Thank you so much, Bridget, for joining me today. How are we feeling? Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm doing great, thank you. And so where are you located? Uh, where is Bridging the Gap Services located? I am Florida, uh, more specifically Plantation, Florida, that's close to um, Fort Lauderdale, Sunrise, Hollywood, Davie. All right, all right. Florida in the, in the building, dealing with that, that not just the heat, but that humidity. Okay. Not yet. It not hasn't yet. been that bad yet. Not, okay, all right. <laughs> well, I'm glad to have you on because, you know, one of your specialties uh, are, you know, well, three of your specialties are anxiety, trauma, and PTSD. And uh, so many people right now are struggling, especially couples, are facing trauma in one form or, or the other. When talking about couples facing trauma, what type of trauma are couples typically dealing with? Um, if we're referring to more specifically of recent times, I would say... Um, the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic um, is still ongoing. Um, I would say that's one of the most recent traumas that couples and, you know, individuals and families have been facing um, to date. So when we talk about traumas, I feel like there's such a wide range of traumas and some people overplay their traumas, some people underplay or dismiss their traumas. How are we defining traumas for the listeners out there? Okay, so trauma is something that it doesn't necessarily have to happen directly to you. I think a lot of people get that um, confused. Um, so it's something life-threatening um, that the person either was in for themselves or they witnessed it happening to someone else or they hear about it happening to um, a close friend or loved one. Um, so that is what, you know, trauma entails. Um, yeah, <laughs> I lost my train of thought there. So it, it seems like, um, and, and just for the listeners, you know, I, I, first of all, I want to say thank you to Bridget because she's, she's joining us after a very long day, seven sessions in a row. So it, it could be some delays here, people. We're in the middle of a pandemic. So uh, uh, show some compassion. Thank you so much, Bridget, for, for being here. Um, so what, what I hear you saying is that when we think about traumas, it's not only what we've experienced, but it could be what we've heard, and it could be from what we've seen. That sounds like even watching a show like Law & Order or CSI or any of these other TV shows or movies where we're witnessing trauma, we're witnessing rape, we're witnessing uh, murder uh, or, or what are, you know, genocide, whatever types of um, traumas are taking place that 
that sticks that sticks in our our DNA and our tissues. It affects us. It's not just something um, that our brain is perceiving as entertainment. Am I correct in saying that? I I would yes and no. Um, and I, I say no because um, in a TV show, I know sometimes we get like very deeply connected to these characters. Um, but if we're going to be defining it as um, the, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM um, that we use to give a diagnosis, um, it clearly states that it has to happen to someone that you know personally. Um, but I say yes, because you know, maybe this person has other trauma from, you know, a time before and, you know, maybe they're watching this TV show, SVU, one of my favorites. Um, I mean, there are some pretty traumatic things that happen during, um, in these shows. And um, if that is triggering a, a memory that this person has of something that happened to them or someone else um, that they are or were close to, then I would say yes. So really it's about, it's not so much about what you're seeing, hearing, or experiencing, but your perception of what comes up for you while that's taking place. Right. And when, when couples are facing trauma, you know, a lot of times blame, one person will blame the other for what's happened. Um, whether it's the pandemic or a loss of a child or whatever the trauma that's happened in the family, how do we address the blame and how do we peel back the layers and, and uh, what, what's the process for that of, I guess, taking responsibility for what's happened? Right. Um, so with, with couples, that's, you know, that's an interesting dynamic um, Usually this is someone that is your, you know, your safekeeper, your companion, the person that you trust most. Um, it is easier to blame this person because they're always in your space. Um, if, if that's your relationship, um, it's easier to blame this person for what you're experiencing. Um, it's going to take one of these individuals from this relationship to say, hey, you know, I noticed that yesterday I said something about taking out the trash and I noticed that you screamed and yelled about about taking out the trash and i you know i was a little confused about that you know the next time if there's something going on you know i'm more than happy to have a listening ear um that could be one way right in an ideal situation um typically what happens is that there's a screaming match that's going on um so it's gonna take one of these people um, having a realization or insight 
to how they're responding to something that is, you know, usually it's minor on the surface, you know, maybe there are other underlying things going on with the couple themselves. Um, so they're not gonna just get up and say, I'm gonna go to therapy. It's gonna take someone in the relationship saying, hey, if the person isn't being insightful for themselves, hey, I need you to seek help. This is what I noticed that's been going on when this happens. Um, and it probably would be best if you or I or we talk to someone. Two things that I noticed that you used. One is I'm noticing and also I need. Why is, you know, I'm in therapy also and, and my therapist is typically using the I'm noticing X, Y, Z. Why is noticing such uh, an effective word or tool in communication? Well, I mean, we don't always say the obvious, right? Um, so when I say noticing, I mean it in the sense of we're paying attention to the person's tone of voice. We're looking at their body language. Um, we're looking at possible gestures to suggest um, other things that they might be communicating but not verbally saying. Um, so I think noticing what's going on with your partner is very important um, because it is a, a, a big part of communication. But, yeah, they say what body language is 80% or 90% communication and less of it is verbal. I don't know what the stats are on that. <laughs> I do know that it's a big part because um, I might be saying one thing, right? And my body is saying something totally different. Um, so having that awareness of your partner and for yourself as well um, can save a lot of people the trouble of uh, miscommunication. I love that. Yeah, because it's not when you use the I'm noticing isn't it's it's not uh, attacking the person It's just mm -hmm. here's what I'm seeing or here's what I'm hearing. Here's what I'm, um, you know, uh, feeling versus you this you that you always oh, yeah. uh, it, it makes it a, a bit less um, aggressive. It sounds like. Right. My clients will tell you that I call them out on that. Um when we start something wise or we start with you always make me i'm like hold up what this person has control over what you do and stay and feel come on um so we want to take responsibility like you were saying earlier take responsibility have accountability for what you're thinking what you're feeling what you're saying how you respond um because when we come off with you know the you this you always you never why do you do this that way it is creating uh an atmosphere for the other person to become defensive because now it sounds like you're blaming this person for something um so i usually tell clients you know 
start out by thinking about how you feel about something. Okay, angry. I feel angry um, when the dishes aren't done by 7 p.m. I need them to be done by XYZ time. Is that something that you can do? You know, so I love that formula of I feel XYZ, I need ABC. And then the question at the end is, uh, you're asking for their buy-in, like, are, are, are we on the same page? Are we collaborating versus, uh, uh, you know, just telling them, telling the other person what to do? Because, you know, we are two adults in the relationship and no one wants to be told what to do. So I love that. I feel I need. And then going into a question form of, is this something that, you know, uh, is reasonable or unreasonable uh, to ask? Mm -hmm. Now, I, you are a DBT, a CDBT uh, licensed psychotherapist. Can you talk to the listeners about what a CDBT uh, licensed uh, cycle, like what type of therapy that is? Certainly. Um, so the CDBT stands for Certified in Dialectical Behavior Therapy. Um, dialectical behavior therapy in the most simple terms um, is a type of therapy that teaches someone balance between two opposites. Um, so one of the hardest ones that even myself um, that I, you know, sometimes have difficulty wrapping my head around it is acceptance and change. Like that's two opposites on the spectrum. And the idea is to teach the client. This is just one example. The idea is to teach the client to find a balance between acceptance and change. Um, not because you're changing a behavior. It doesn't mean that you're not accepting yourself for who you are or for some behaviors that you might have. It's just saying that there is, you're always doing your best, right? Because if you could do better, you would. So you're always doing your best and you're building on ways to improve that. Um, that's the simplest way to put it. There are a lot of skills and acronyms and <laughs> um, all these things that we do teach along the way. Um, it's excellent for borderline personality disorder. Um, that was the, the disorder that it was developed for originally. Um, they've managed to adapt it in a way where it's used for bipolar, self-harming, um, suicide attempts, um, anything that involves like emotional dysregulation. Um, it's a great tool for crisis management um, and distress tolerance. You said for suicide attempts. Uh, so you said in finding the balance, what's the imbalance in people who are attempting suicide and uh and how does you know cdbt come into play in those situations okay um so with that aspect i mentioned that because um 
if we think about the origin of the treatment model, um, it was developed for originally for borderline personality disorder. Um, within that disorder, these are clients who have usually have complex trauma or um, an extensive trauma history. Um, as that develops, um, they tend to have a lot of suicide attempts and or self-harming behaviors. So the DBT goes through steps that um, teaches them emotional regulation skills and distress tolerance. Um, to help to to manage those urges or the need to self-harm so that's that's how it, it ties in together you said that there are steps uh for those who are emotionally dysregulated in terms of suicidal attempts can you share what, with us what those steps are i'm sorry steps for what you said that there are steps for someone who is, who has just you know had a suicidal attempt and helping them to regulate their emotions through DBT. Can you share with us what those steps are? Okay, um, so staying true to the model, if let's say I had a client and we're doing DBT, because for each therapy model it's, it's different. Um, let's say this client specifically, we agreed that we were doing DBT, I explained to them how it works, um, you know, what the expectations are. Um, let's say this client was having a moment where they are feeling the need to self-harm. And um, a part of the model includes you, you get X amount of times that you can call your therapist outside of sessions, you know, so you're usually always available to these clients. Um, you get X amount of time during the week to call your therapist. Let's say the client calls and um, they say, you know, I already cut my arm. Um, you know, I'm at XYZ. That is when the therapist would say, okay, so you've already done something about it. Um, I can't speak to you. You know, you need to go to the nearest emergency room, so-and-so. Let's say, on a different note, the client calls and says, um, I, I feel like I want to self-harm or I think I'm going to cut my wrist. Um, at that point, the steps would be that we're doing a certain amount of de-escalation, we're processing what the situation is you know you're offering the next available appointment when they can come in so those would be the steps as a therapist and on their part if they're feeling the need to self-harm to give the therapist a call in a dbt situation um, some models some other models may have that adaptation it just depends on what the therapist's um, boundaries are so that's also something to consider. I think the highlighting point is asking for help, seeking help from someone who might be able to talk you out of 
something that is hurting you to the point that you want to self-harm. Um, we also have to keep in mind that people self-harm for different reasons. Um, some people do it to ground themselves, to feel like they're real, they're in the moment, they're present. Um, some people do it as an emotional um, release. Some people do it because that pain might be better than the emotional pain that they're experiencing. Um, so I think it, it's, you know, it's also a good idea for the therapist and the client to have that conversation about what is the purpose um, that, that self-harm has for them. So that would be another step to take. So if someone is, is sitting in your office and, and they're sharing with you that they've had a, a previous attempt and, you know, we get to kind of the source of it being a way for them to ground themselves. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've never really thought of it that way. Well, what are some alternative grounding methods uh, or what or maybe what would be then the next step that you would want the, the client to take uh, in terms of finding ways to ground themselves? Right up my alley. <laughs> um, mindfulness. It's being aware of what's going on um, around you. So that could be internal and external. Um, you're observing that information. So you're observing with your five senses what's happening around you. And you're also focusing on what's going on internally. So that's thoughts, body sensations, feelings. Um, based on that information, you sort of summarize in your head, this is what's happening. This is how I'm feeling. I had the thought that. Um, and using that information to make a mindful decision. Um, so some basic grounding skills, and I would say it's very effective once it's done um, correctly, or if it, you know, if you if it's practiced enough, um, is the five, four, three, two, one grounding. I, I always talk about that one. Um, that's where you're incorporating your five senses. So that's an excellent exercise to distract yourself from um, something that is distressing. So you're looking around and you're saying to yourself, okay, five things in the room that I see are blue. You, you know, you look around, you name them out. Four things that I'm feeling. Um, feeling meaning the sense of touch. So, you know, I feel the ground beneath my feet. I feel the chair that I'm sitting on. I feel my very soft blouse. Those would be some examples. Um, three things that I hear. So you're tuning into your sense of hearing. What am I hearing that's going on around me? Um, two things that I smell. And this can be very purposeful where maybe you put on your favorite lotion or if you have essential oils or a sage or whatever it is. <laughs> Um, this could be a very purposeful part and, you, you know, you, you smell, um, you might want to use something that's your, your, your favorite fragrance. 
um, and then one thing that you taste. And then that's how you would incorporate the five senses into an exercise like that. It sounds very simple, um, but it is very effective to distract yourself from um, a highly distressful situation. Um, it's not to be, it's not to replace any other type of relaxation techniques because it doesn't physiologically um, relax the body. It's just distracting from something in that moment. So you said it's a distraction. I, I've never thought about that, of certain techniques being used as a tool for distraction and then other tools being used as a tool for relaxation. I would have thought they were synonymous, but you're right because I've used that five, four, three, two, one technique before. Um, I actually not as exhaustively as you have shared, um, just like noticing five things that are blue. And I, I didn't know about the four, three, two, one aspect to it. Um, but it does require work and, and you're right. It's not necessarily relaxing because you do have to, you know, look around to spot, see five things or, or hear the noises or, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a strain, uh, mm -hmm. that's involved to tune into that. So, you know, so after we've distracted ourselves, right. And, and now maybe we've brought our emotional, uh, our cortisol levels down a bit. Uh, how, what are, what would be a technique for relaxation? Also simple but effective if it's done correctly. So it will take an, uh, um, an amount of practice and that's deep breathing, um, but not just deep breathing. Um, go as far as belly breathing, where if you place your hand on your chest, the other on your stomach, and you're slowly breathing in through your nose and you're feeling your stomach um, going out, so it's like filling a balloon in the stomach. Um, then, you know, that's deep belly breathing. And you're holding it, I would say, for at least four seconds, longer if you can. Um, and then you slowly release that through your mouth as if you were blowing into a straw. Um, you want to do it slowly because you want to give the body enough time to circulate the oxygen and all of that stuff to help those good, feel good chemicals being released. Um, so the slower you do that, it helps with, with the oxygen levels and also, um, it helps to slow the heart rate down which, you know, tends to increase if you're feeling anxious or stressed out or angry about something. Um, so I would say that's one of the foundational relaxation techniques that I, that, you know, should be one of the first things that someone uh, masters. I love that. And, you know, because, uh, you know, I was a Boy Scout, uh, I always believe in a backup you know, you shared with us a, a grounding technique in a five, four, three, two, one. Is there a backup grounding technique uh, that you have, an alternative? Um, yes. So other um, distraction techniques could include um, going on a mindful walk, 
So on this walk, you're, it, it also incorporates your, your, your um, senses. So on this walk, you're noticing how the air smells, how it feels, what are some of the things that you observe around you, you know, the colors of the tree, um, preferably a scenic route, right? But if you're not able to do that, whatever you have at your dispense, that's fine. Um, so mindful walks, um, thinking about, I think the game is called categories, where you think about a category and you list any number of things within that category, as many as you can list. That's another great one. Um, what else would be a distraction? You know what I love about the categories distraction is I actually use that um, in terms of I'll go like, all right, name 10 car models or uh, don't tell Michelle this, like 15 girls you've dated or, uh, you know, name, I try to name like all 50 states, which I could never, I always forget that by the time I get to like 35, 40, I forget like the first five I've said, I'm like, did I say that already? Um, but, but it definitely works in terms of a distraction or, you know, 10 dog breeds or, you know, something like that along, along those lines. So it, it definitely works, uh, for emotional regulation. Also, like when I'm bored, you know, and I, I'm just like, you know, standing in line at Whole Foods or something, and I just need to take my mind somewhere. So yeah, I definitely right. use that cat, the categories a lot. In terms of the, um, uh, co not comforting, but what was it? Uh, the relaxation model, uh, you know, you shared that the belly breathing, breathing is so hard for some people. I just downloaded James <laughs> Esther's book, uh, called breath to figure out how to breathe better or how to, how to take a breath. It's, it's so fascinating because it's the one thing that we have that can really help us uh, regulate our emotions and how quickly we dissociate from it. Right. I mean, it's not until I sit down and meditate that I realize I haven't taken a breath all day, you know? So, um, <laughs> uh, besides breathing and, and tapping into breath, can you give us one other relaxation technique? Yes. Um, there is another one called progressive muscle relaxation. Um, the progressive comes in where you're starting at one end of your body and making your way to the other end. Um, that's the progressive component. Um, so what happens is that you start by tensing a, a muscle in your body. So usually I like to start with the face. Um, so either you're raising eyebrows to tense that muscle and you tense for about five seconds and relax for about 10 seconds for each muscle. Um, you make your way down to your neck, shoulder, arms, abdomen, thighs, legs, toes. Um, so you're spending time on each muscle. So you're not doing them all together. You're doing them one at a time. Of course, your eyebrows, that's kind of hard to do one at a time. Um, but in terms of your arms, um, your limbs, 
you're doing one side first and then the other side and make your way down. Now, if you have an injury, um, that's not an area of your body that you want to include in this exercise. Um, <laughs> that won't be fun. And I don't think the doctor would recommend that. Um, so that would be the only exception. You know, it, it sounds like, and I haven't read the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Oh. Um, but I, I see your face lighting up. It, I'm, I'm assuming you've read the book. Um, is there anything in the book that you felt like should have been included or was missed or, or something that you that really resonated with you and, and how people are facing trauma? So I'm going to burst your bubble right there. <laughs> My face lit up um, because it's a book. It sounds so bad saying this. It's a book that I've recommended to clients to read because I've read the reviews and it's something that I've gone over during um, any trauma courses or refresher um, courses that I've done. It's usually a book that comes up. Um, so I do oftentimes recommend that book to clients to read for therapy homework if they've <clears throat> been through some amount of trauma. Um, I can tell you about the first page <laughs> that gives an excellent example of how post-traumatic stress disorder develops. So please tell us <laughs> uh, your thoughts on it. On how trauma develops? Yes. Yes. Um, so what happens after a traumatic event, as we've defined earlier, um, after that event, there is a, a moment or a, a brief period of time where the, the brain tries to heal itself. Um, so that might look like different thoughts coming up about the event, different flashbacks, um, may some nightmares in there. Um, what happens when we ignore these different signs that the brain is giving us um, saying, hey, I need to heal. This is how I need to do it to store it in long term memory. But you keep avoiding my phone calls, you keep avoiding um, the different reminders. And it's tough, right? It's difficult to sit through um, traumatic thoughts or, or things related to trauma. Um, so long-term, what that looks like is that um, physiologically, we are, the nervous system rather, is in a, a fight, flight, or freeze response to perceived threats. Now, maybe let's say if a white curtain was there at the time of the trauma, right? Um, that curtain gets conditioned into the traumatic event. So we see a white curtain, the body goes into fight, flight, or freeze. The white curtain isn't necessarily a danger, but it is a reminder of that event. Um, so it could come up in those ways as well. Um, 
So what happens is that it takes an amount of sitting with those uncomfortable feelings, not avoiding um, working through how the brain wants to heal. So it takes, you know, talking about the event, usually on an ongoing basis um, with a trained professional. Um, the only way through with that is is through. There is no other way to process PTSD unless it's, you know, you're sitting through with it and um, processing. Right, because a lot of times we don't even realize how we've subconsciously processed uh, an event until we've talked it through and then we start remembering details um, and realizing how much it's affected us uh, because, you know, we're, we're, most of us are trained in suppressing our emotions and our thoughts and acting like everything is fine. And we don't realize how putting on that, that mask and pretending and acting and suppressing is affecting other areas of our lives. Right. And it, not everyone who's been through trauma develops post-traumatic stress um, because, you know, if let's, let's say you were able to work yourself through those um, intense emotions and the thoughts that come up after the traumatic event. Um, the likelihood of developing PTSD is, is, is smaller than someone who avoids that, you know, natural part of the process after a trauma. Um, it's not necessarily right after the trauma that PTSD develops. Sometimes it's one year later. It just depends on what that person's um, trauma reminders are. Um, and, you know, everyone deals with things in different ways and everyone's brain develops in different ways. So there is no one size fits all to say, hey, you know, after X amount of time after the trauma, you know, PTSD will follow. So also being mindful of that, that, you know, two years later, you find yourself having a flashback about something that happened, um, you know, that's just as normal as someone experiencing that three months after a trauma. Yeah, I remember my dad passed away. It took me a year, maybe a year and a half before I just broke down crying. I probably cried for like two hours. I mean, it, it was just ugly, just in the car. Uh, and it was, you know, I was reminded by a movie. Um, and one of the things that I notice you saying, Bridget, is uh, reminded or reminders. Is there a difference between triggers and reminders or are those interchangeable? So they're interchangeable. Um, however, the models that I've trained under um, tend to stay away from triggers. Um, I'm not quite understanding of what the um, derogatory connotation is with that. Um, so they tend to, to encourage us to say trauma reminders. So things that remind you of the trauma. I love that. And besides uh, the book, The Body Keeps the Score, what other books are, have you 
you find yourself recommending the most to your clients or even friends or or that you yourself uh, keep going back to? Um, so that would depend on each person's unique situation. Um, I think I have one here, right, actually. Um, a client recently started reading this. It's called Dying Childhood Abandonment Issues. And I've, I've made it a point of duty to start reading books I recommend so I can have a deeper discussion about them. Um, so that's one, Dying Childhood Abandon Abandonment Issues, and that's by Don Carter. Um, there's also Attachment Theory by Robert Stewart. For me, I read a lot of treatment manuals on, on my end. So um, there's the Trauma Focus CBT, and that's by Jay Cohen. Um, and then, of course, the other treatment manual that I've been practicing um, is CPT, Cognitive Processing Ther Therapy. Love that. Thank you for sharing that. And I would assume that for a lot of people struggling with trauma, journaling comes into play. I had a therapist recommend that I journal with my non-dominant hand as a way of connecting with my younger self. How have you incorporated uh, journaling into, uh, into therapy? Um, so that's not everyone's cup of tea and the clients will be very straightforward. I don't like writing. I don't like journaling. I'm not going to do that. And even if they say they're going to do it, if that's not something that they like, they definitely show up week after week, no therapy homework done. So it's not for everyone. <laughs> um, some people just prefer talking about it. Or if you don't want to journal and you're okay with making a recording, that's fine. Um, I think it's an excellent tool for people who will wholeheartedly be involved in that process. And definitely, if you're going to be doing cognitive processing therapy, um, it requires a lot of writing and a lot, it has a lot of therapy homework. Um, so, for those folks, maybe a different treatment model approach, you know, would be necessary. Um, I, I've been through that. Ruby Maru was a client. They did not like therapy homework at all. And we probably spent 10 sessions and we got to like um, part session five of the, <laughs> the model. Um, so journaling excellent if you're okay with that um if not maybe talking it out on a recording um talking to a friend um some people write poetry some people write songs some people write books yeah, I definitely, you know, I love to write, but also have found it to be soothing. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I started the podcast is there's something soothing about um, hearing my voice played back to me. Um, and I can't describe it. I haven't, you know, looked into why that is, but I know other people who record messages to themselves that they play on their drive to work or from work or 
when they feel themselves uh, uh, being emotionally dysregulated um, in that state. The last two questions, Bridget, um, one is, you know, as we said at the beginning of this, you know, you had seven clients today that you went through and a lot of people are finding themselves working harder because they are working from home or working more and exhausted. What is your, could you share with us your morning or bedtime routine, whichever you you, uh, feel more comfortable with? Sure. Um, So I am generally not a morning person. Even if I wake up early, I just have a rule. I will not see anyone at 7 a.m. or 8 (laughs) a.m. 9 a.m. is pushing it, but I do make those exceptions because people also have to go to work. Um, They don't have time in the evenings necessarily. Maybe they have kids or they have a later job. Um, So during that time where I'm up, but I'm not up, Um, Maybe I do some reading or I'm chit-chatting with my sister, Um, making coffee. Oh my gosh, that's essential. That's therapeutic for me, just watching (laughs) the the, the, the coffee um, getting brewed and the smell. Like that's my morning therapy before any client. I'm not an addict, guys. <laughs> I don't have the um, the physical responses to coffee withdrawal. Um, I would say a lot of my self-care happens after, though. Um, so I, I don't think I wake up early enough to give myself enough time to self-care before clients. So it comes after where, you know, I, I will... I usually tell people if I need a good cry, I'm going to turn on Grey's Anatomy. That's like my favorite TV show. I've watched it over every year since it's been made and it just got signed for season 18. Um, So you can imagine. And I get emotional every time. (laughs) Um, I do workbooks for myself. I also do... Um, I guess it's a form of journaling, but it's like guided journaling. So it will ask you prompt questions. Um, one of them I just started is a self-love book. Um, I try to read new information, not every day. Um, sometimes I'm too exhausted for that, but Um, That's something that I I do if it's even twice for the week. Um, I do live with my sister. So if she's in the mood and I'm in the mood, that's a part of my, you know, the stress time where if I have something that I need to talk it out with her, if she's not in the mood, I mean, I have friends that I can call. Um, That's a big part of having a social support system going. I would, yeah, I would say that's, that's what it entails. I do have my, um, it's not running right now, but I have a water fountain that I plug in during the day. Um, Sometimes I need to ground myself while I'm seeing clients, and that's an excellent way. Um, Sometimes I do have my, uh, what do you call it, my aromatherapy going. 
So I have essential oils. I I can't remember the name of the thing right now. <laughs> that the, vape thing. Yeah, yeah. That, that 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 thing. Yeah. That thing. That thing. Um. <laughs> that Google helps. that thing. Google that thing. <laughs> that that vape thing. Yeah. Uh, Siri, Siri always seems to know what you're talking about. Did you mean? Uh, <laughs> actually, I did. Thank you, Siri. Uh, and then last question. Thank you for sharing all that. Uh, last question, Bridget. Because I always imagine that there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Bridget? I, I really do hope for you that someone notices. I'm going back to that word, notices. Um, really do hope that someone notices because I think that makes a difference for someone who really wants help but doesn't know how to ask, doesn't know where to go. Um, there are always some excellent tools online or even on your phone. Um, there is a National Suicide Prevention Line that you can either call. They have a text line if you're not the type of person who, you know, wants to talk during that time, they text. Um, I think NAMI, NAMI is nationwide. Um, that's another excellent resource that offers support groups, um, different types of therapy, different ways that they can help. Um, so if at this time there's no one there that's noticing what's going on with you, I do encourage you to reach out to one of these resources. And, and for the listeners out there, thank you for sharing that with us, Bridget. You know that uh, both links to the National Suicide Prevention and International Suicide Prevention Hotlines and NAMI are all linked in each and every single one of the show notes. Uh, thank you, Bridget, for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK or the Trevor Project or the, there's a domestic violence hotline um, and there's a million other resources. If you need help getting um your your mental health paid for there are links in the show notes for people who can assist you financially with getting the mental health help that you need uh you can talk you can text there are groups a lot of it is for free don't let finances be a barrier to you getting the help that you need you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly let's get to tomorrow together thank you so much bridget you're welcome. Thank you for lending a listening ear.